Hello, Internet friends, and welcome back to Love-Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and we're here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your life in that order. And Andy, your beautiful face. (laughs) Once again, we're looking at each other during. I mean, sometimes I tell him to close his eyes and think of England, but this time, (laughs) this time I can look him dead in the face and go, you look at England to my face. (laughs) Yeah, if we sound a little different than normal, that's because I am currently sitting in Alex's guest bedroom. Which I have now. Which you have now. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty great. Yeah, Andy and uh, his lovely wife Mariah decided to come down to visit us. And, I mean, what would an Andy visit be if, you know, we didn't haul up... I don't know how much money worth of recording equipment and just recorded an episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that much. It's more like like we're we're here for a, a finite amount of time and I decided well we decided that let's use some of that finite amount of time to separate ourselves from our wives and sit in this room and talk for two hours. Wow, that was the douchiest thing. Oh god! I, I I would if we weren't recording, I'd tell you to put a dollar in the jar. Right. But uh, <laughs> we have a douchebag jar. Everyone in my household, every time someone makes a bad pun or is a complete douche, they're forced to put a dollar in the jar. So I think I I think I seriously owe you like three bucks at this point you probably you probably owe me money for other shit too so (laughs) but this has been uh delightful yeah we're up in Asheville. we uh, decided to take a trip and have a little vacay and see people that we love dearly yeah yesterday we saw a bunch of high school children put on a performance of sweeney todd we did it was an event we supported local live theater which is important yeah yeah you know like the the kids the kids were fine they were fine <laughs> like you should probably mic actors some of the time and if you can't you should probably turn down the music so that they can be heard maybe give them some monitors i will say like it was a fairly low budget production but you know it, we're reviewing local Asheville theater we're lo- right? yeah now this is the most douchebag thing oh I've ever god that's like it's it's like it's like we're the New Yorker, but we uh, we lack money. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting. We haven't talked about theater all that much. I don't feel like for as big of theater nerds as we absolutely were. Yeah, I mean, we put I put Assassins as a love on an old. That's episode. true. You did. Yeah, like that's a different Sondheim musical, but yeah, I think we've both gotten away from it a lot. You know, yeah. like I, I I go see occasional local shows here, but it's like the movies and the TV and the politics and the burritos are just you know around more often. <laughs> And so they're, they're the things that kind of seem to take front and center in our lives. Right. And I figure I'm, I'm waiting for a time we can do a big ol' double discussion on the works of Shakespeare. I feel like that's a little vague. I feel like, <laughs> like that would be... De- I mean, granted, I have a Shakespeare reference tattooed on my chest. <laughs> so uh, there are worse things, but I feel like we can... Tony Kushner, maybe like Tony Kushner. Yeah. Tony Kushner could work, maybe. Uh, America. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because one thing I thought about before we even started this project was, what? How long is it going to take us to do a Hamilton episode? <laughs> and we haven't done a Hamilton episode yet. 
That seems like it should be a triple love, but I feel like we should get a triple hate out before we do a triple, another triple love. There's always uh, the ever-looming topic of American politics. So... <laughs> we already did Steve King. Let that's it breathe true. a minute. No, that's true. Yeah, no. <laughs> I was. It's funny, I'm listening to some of our older episodes just because I forget what we've done. So I'll listen to them at like three times the speed just to catch things. And I'm remembering like, oh yeah, there was that one time where I said, let's do an entire, I, I want to do an entire hate section on the Olympics. Right. And that doesn't seem timely because the Olympics aren't, when are the Olympics? So they're 20, they're 2020, right? Yeah. Yeah. So summer of next year, you know, we're coming up on our first annual episode. So maybe for our second annual, I can do like a giant thing on the Olympics. I can dig it. You know, it, it, Speaking about how we talk about doing the podcast while we're on the podcast, it would be amazing to pick a topic where it's something I hate and you love, and you talk about how much you love it, and I talk about how much I hate it. I'm sure we can find something like that. It's just, we we, we tend to think along the same ley lines in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, the hate I have lined up is something that I think you like more than I do, but... Um, I think it's something my wife likes more than either of us. Yeah, but I don't <laughs> think you hate it like I hate it. No, probably not. Yeah, no. So you know, we'll we'll we'll, we'll find our pacing there. I'm yeah. sure, but you know, yeah. But I will just take any opportunity to podcast. Actually, sitting in this case, I'm sitting catty corner to you. I'm not actually really. I've turned my body to face you, like, right. and I'm kind of got this like. If y'all want to picture this, I'm sitting in a pair of Batman pajama pants, and I'm facing Andy sitting like I'm Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct. And I'm just waiting for that crowd shot. Oh, you just wait. <laughs> you just wait. Crotchless Batman pants. I feel like you could sell those. I feel like most pajama pants wind up being crotchless. Oh, not mine. I split them down the ass. Uh, well. Or I fray them. And <laughs> <laughs> no girl... It's okay. Yeah. You want to get started? Sure, okay. sure. We, I, I, we have very sparse notes because we kind of threw this together pretty quickly, but I feel like we will end up talking a whole fuck ton on this episode. Yeah, you know. But despite knowing this trip was coming, we weren't actually sure if we were going to do anything with this project or not until it just kind of fell into place that way. So this will be a little more off the cuff than normal, but I think it was going to be a good time. Yeah, not by much. The last time we recorded in the same room, we had like days to prepare. Yeah, so, yeah. All right, so Andy, you are our love guru this time. Uh, I am demanding a love guru drop right there. God damn it. Okay. Uh, from Paramount Pictures. Rajneesh, I'd like an alligator soup and make it snappy. Because alligators are snappy. And at the same time, I want it prompt. I love you. <laughs> so Andy is our love guru for the day. Uh, and he brought something that actually I think we're both big fans of. So yeah. by all means, Andy, take it away. Yeah. So today I'm talking about why I love Neil Gaiman. Um, Gaiman. Gaiman, that's true, yes. We confirmed that today. Guys, it's Gaiman. It's Gaiman and giggity. (laughs) Neil Gaiman, who I would argue is the best fantasy author of the modern era. He is a writer of comics, novels, television, pretty much everything Mm -hmm. that you can write. He's, He's been writing. 
Um, and he is a phenomenal talent. He is, I feel, a pretty well-known author, but at the same time kind of has this this cult following, this this is how you check if someone is like particularly with the modern fantasy book scene name drop Gaiman and see what happens. Well, Gaiman. It, yeah. And I Gaiman. mean, it, it's funny. Cause like I, I, when I was in graduate school, it was always interesting because I was around a lot of the academic literature, literature types. Uh, and, and a lot of my instruction was in, you know, your literary fiction area. And there were students who knew who Neil Gaiman was. There were almost no teachers who knew him, or if they knew him, they knew him tangentially in the same way you know who George R. R. Martin is. Sure. They're n- they, I doubt any of them had ever read any George R. R. Martin. None of them had ever read any Neil Gaiman, but they, like, knew he existed. So it, it's interesting, yeah, to say, like, I think most people know him, but also he, if you aren't into his genres, yeah. his stuff, his milieus. If you don't read comics, you're not going to know Neil Gaiman's comics work because he's not like an Alan Moore or a Grant Morrison or a Stan Lee. Right. And and we're going to get into that a little bit. I think that is absolutely why he's he's getting well known, especially like I would say in the past 10 years, he's really started to pick up in popularity, but he's not yet like a a name that just anyone a household name he's not a household name that absolutely anyone would know but so to get into it give a little history give a little fact neil gaiman was born in 1960 in hampshire england and it, it, it's interesting i didn't know any of this until doing an actual bit of hard research uh, two hours ago <laughs> but gaiman's family is uh Polish Jewish by descent, but also they are Scientologists. And Neil Gaiman considers himself to be neither, which is fascinating to me because I know enough about Scientology. Um, there are several fascinating documentaries going around right now that you can educate yourself on if you want to learn about what awful shit they do. And everything seems crazy when you're not used to it. That's why so many comics make fun of Scientology, right? Because like... Well, because it's a batshit crazy religion, but... If his family are practicing Scientologists and he's not, that almost guarantees that he is, like, excommunicated from his family. Mm -hmm. And I I didn't see anything talking about that, but I just know that's a thing in Scientology. If somebody, like, leaves the cult, you're supposed to drop all contact with them. Mm -hmm. Gaiman himself is actually a proclaimed agnostic, and I actually love this. He uh, his his exact quote on it is: "I think we can all agree God exists in the DC universe." That's incredible. Yeah. I did not. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, and and like that's just that's just a, a snippet of the kind of humor and and tongue-in-cheek wit that i think he's known for in a lot of his works Mm -hmm. um neil gaiman as you would imagine was a voracious reader growing up he started like like reading actual book books at like the age of four Mm -hmm. 
and I actually really like this. You you go down the list of like who his favorite fantasy authors were, or not not his his favorite his favorite authors. Period, and it's a who's who of famous fantasy people. You know, J.R.R. Tolkien, Lewis Carroll, Michael Moorcock, C.S. Lewis, Dennis Wheatley, and getting into Alan Moore, Steve Ditko, Harlan Ellison, like. Like those are some not not Ellison so much, but Moore and Ditko are contemporary comics authors. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting that he grew up reading their works. Yeah. Neil Gaiman's first published book was in 1984, <laughs> and I didn't know what it was. <laughs> and I'm gonna let Alex educate. Uh, so this is one of my favorite stories about Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman is one of the last, like, of that generation of authors, a lot like uh, Hunter S. Thompson or Ernest Hemingway, where he actually got his start in journalism. He started off doing, you know, just working in newspapers and magazines. And he got an offer for his first book. Publisher liked his journalism enough that they, they were like, we want you to write a book. What we want you to do is write a music biography. Now, Gaiman at the time, he'd been writing short stories and fiction and, and all this stuff forever. But he thought, music biography, that's great. That's a great idea for a first book. Uh, maybe, I wonder if I, and he's sitting here like thinking in his head, it's like, maybe I can do a biography about David Bowie. Or, or, or maybe an examination of Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground. Like, this is where Neil Gaiman's head is. And they say, okay, we want you to do a rock and roll biography. We want you to write about Duran Duran. Meeting you. And Neil Gaiman is just like, are you? I mean, it's, it's still a book deal. (laughs) Um, Now, I've actually looked this up. You can find Neil Gaiman's Duran Duran book. It's like, it's out of print. You can find old copies. Some of them are literally selling for hundreds of dollars. Because it's Neil Gaiman's first book. Right. But, like, you can find excerpts from it online. And it's seriously, he was forced. You can tell this was an editor's decision. Because Neil Gaiman doesn't give a shit about Duran Duran. And it's just like, the Fab Five are seen here trolling about a boat on the English Channel. (laughs) Simon Le Bon looks off into the sunset (laughs) and talks about his love of the monkeys or something like that. Like... It is so clearly it's the mid '80s, and we need to sell this book to the to the young women who are buying Duran Duran albums. And Neil Gaiman apparently, like, if you have a, if you happen to find this book or have a copy of it anywhere, Neil Gaiman has he says like a few times a year someone will come to a book signing of his and have this book, and he always offers to buy it from them because he doesn't want it on the market. He doesn't want it available publicly. That's so amazing to be that embarrassed by your first thing. And I mean, I I, I get it. Yeah, and not long afterwards, he started writing comic books and, and things like that. So it, it did, there was a good shift there, but I just love that that was his first, right. his first actual book-length project. And that that's just an amazing story. You know, I'm sitting here looking at you, and I recently was just shown my first episode of Drunk History. <laughs> and, like, just, just for our own sake, we had a conversation about what our own drunk histories would be about. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you've got an answer I don't, but I would love to have you, like, learn a bunch more about Sandman and then get you just plastered and have you tell that exact same story over Tell you this, oh my god. I'm... <laughs> How many volumes is Sandman, though? Uh, ten. 
Yeah, exactly. It's, oh my god, man. Oh, no, no, no. I don't want you to tell Sandman drunk. I want you to talk about Neil Gaiman drunk. But you need to know about Sandman to talk about Neil Gaiman. This is true. Which brilliantly segues into my next talking point. If he does say so himself. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so Neil Gaiman started writing in 1984, but he quickly uh, left journalism because he... um, in his own words, but not a direct quote, he he felt like the British journalist scene was a lot more okay with publishing lies than he was. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, that's a pretty good reason to get out of journalism if you can't stomach that sort of thing. So he leaves journalism and takes a turn into writing comic books. And I'm not quite sure how, but he had developed a friendship with, you know, titan of the industry, Alan Moore. And his first comic book job, Gaiman's, was writing a British comic book called Miracle Man after Moore had left the book. Mm -hmm. And I just want to talk about Miracle Man for a second here because all I know about Miracle Man is it's basically if Superman went insane and, like, killed a bunch of people. Parts of it, sure. Yeah. Miracle Man is one of those characters, like like so many DC characters, that has gone through like 19 different iterations, depending on who's been sure. writing him. There definitely was that period of Miracle Man. Right now, Miracle Man is being written by Tom King. Oh. And I have read the reviews on it, and it is uh, fascinating high fantasy. Okay. So, yeah. But... All this to say, like, I haven't read Neil Gaiman's Miracle Man run, but it would not surprise me, because I have read Alan Moore's Miracle Man run, and that was batshit crazy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he, he's writing Miracle Man, and he managed to get hired on to DC Comics, specifically when DC still owned Vertigo, mm-hmm. and Vertigo had not split off into its own uh, comics company and so he he writes a couple of minor things for dc he uh the most famous thing he did before sandman was this comic called black orchid which is actually a lot like the early volumes of sandman in that it kind of name drops a bunch of dc characters but is it you it, it might as well not be dc mm-hmm. like you can take out lex Luthor and just name him something else and it still works it's a lot of how vertigo was back then yeah yeah um, but in 1989, he winds up starting what I believe should be Neil Gaiman's penultimate work. It, it's the thing that I think of first when I think of the man, and that is the comic series Sandman. Mm-hmm. I love Sandman. I've talked about it on the show before. It is one of the, like comic books that i have made a point to collect every issue of Mm -hmm. which is easy because it's a 10 volume series and then it actually ends but sandman is a very very high concept Mm sci-fi to to get into it would be an exercise in talking a lot so to try and simplify sandman features the character of dream And Dream is something called an Endless. And the Endless are like these seven metaphysical beings that exist above gods. And they are like 
the seven things that keep the universe running dream destiny despair desire destruction and death Mm-hmm. I think that's seven. I might yeah. be missing. They're basically like personifications of the concepts. Right, exactly. You can think of it as kind of... I think the easiest way to kind of look at it is... Think of them like the Greek gods, but even more omnipotent. Yeah. Like like the Greek gods regularly in the fiction of Sandman. Like, not only the Greek gods, but several real-life pantheons of gods show up and are just instantly like deferring to the endless and i did forget the seventh it's delirium but yeah and sandman we did we talk we we talk about all these god figures that show up and all these mythological entities that show up in sandman and that actually i was thinking about it is part of why i like it because mm-hmm. i was always a huge mythology nerd okay i love the stories of greek mythology and norse mythology you know the the ones that were more kind of story driven, mm-hmm. and it was just always so fascinating to me these 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 creatures and these these tales of things. And in all of Gaiman's work, and so of course in Sandman, I feel like he loves mythology in much the same way I do because mm-hmm. he's constantly tapping into it. Sure. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but you know one of Neil Gaiman's most famous books is American Gods. Mm-hmm. And that is entirely about mythology. American Gods could also could almost be like I, I don't think this was its conception, but I could totally see Gaiman having like an idea notebook. The mm-hmm. way like Morrison or Claremont did, where they just have a notebook where they just write their ideas and they just come back to it when they're actually writing. I could see American Gods really being taken, and to another extent, Norse mythology, a recent book he's come out right. with, um, all being essentially Sandman research and Sandman ideas that didn't fit into the actual storyline, yeah. and then repurposed into this. Yeah, I could absolutely see that. Um, and, and, and Sandman, it, it's the kind of book where there is an overarching plot, but... I keep referencing volumes. It, it is very easy to break it down into these more bite-sized stories. Mm-hmm. You know, the main character is Dream, but there will be several runs of issues where he barely shows up. And instead it's focusing on a completely new character for that has their own complete different arcs or stories. It's also the kind of book where, like, Gaiman was never afraid to just kind of tell a single story in an issue mm-hmm. like there's one that's actually really kind of sad and beautiful but it deals with the dc comics character metamorpho mm. and metamorpho is basically a shapeshifter and this it, it it actually deals with a woman who has the same exact power set as metamorpho and she was like a f-list dc character but the single issue goes through a day in her life where all she wants is to be normal and not be this orange and purple and white-faced putty monster thing and he's able to just break down these high concept things and refract them into a more normal story Mm -hmm. and i think that's really cool yeah. Sandman's amazing. I don't want to, like, like I said, to try and deeply dive into Sandman, I would need to 
talk for quite some time, and Sa- there are other points yeah. I want to hit on. Sandman can be its own list, but yeah, like, yeah, uh, I I like that you want to center Sandman because so I discovered Gaiman not through his comics work, right? Though I do love his comics work. Sandman is fantastic. Whatever happened to the Cape Crusader is one of my top uh, Batman stories. Marvel sixteen oh two is an incredible, just like Elseworlds yeah. Marvel story. But I got I, I I first started reading Gaiman with his fantasy novels, right? So like Neverwhere, American Gods, um, Mirror Mask, Good Omens, yeah. Uh, more recently, Coraline, uh, The Ocean at the End of the Lane. All of these. I always sum up Neil Gaiman's fantasy novels as it's Alice in Wonderland, but. Yeah, that's a great way to do that. All of his fantasy books tend to be like, here's a character in a normal world. Coraline, Neverwhere, American Gods. All of them are like, I am a normal person living a normal life. And then I am brought into this weird fantasy-esque twisted world where I don't know everything that's going on and things are happening and people aren't really taking the time to sit down and explain it to me. Um, so it's a weird, surreal experience, but it's awesome. And all the characters around are incredible. So it's Alice in Wonderland, but Alice is a banker and he needs to rescue, uh, a human door to heaven. It's Alice in Wonderland, but Alice, uh, is a, instead of being a 10 year old girl who is, you know, just chasing off into some weird doorway, she goes into a random doorway and there is another version of her mother there with buttons in her eyes. Like it's 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 always that variation and it so works he somehow finds ways to just make it so fascinating absolutely i think that's a great way to describe it and sum it up you know it's you you see the influences of lewis carroll and and c.s lewis it's it's if the kids had gone into narnia and there wasn't a fawn and a beaver there to explain everything that was going on and the politics of the issue. It's like if they just stepped into Narnia and were instantly like having to do battle with the White Witch and stuff. That is how Gaiman likes to introduce his worlds by realizing that in real life nobody tells you all these intricacies so there's no reason it should happen in the book you have to discover things as they go along yeah interestingly enough gaiman really hasn't done all that much in comics i think he absolutely did kind of phase more into novel writing and later television and show running he's written a couple other things for dc he's written a couple of the marvel 1602 books But the last thing on Sandman I want to talk about is just this past year, uh, Vertigo relaunched a series of not quite mini series, but they're probably not going to be like main series, but it's like five new Sandman books. And I haven't really checked any of them out yet. I'm waiting for them to come out and trade paperback and, and, you know, take bigger bites of the story. But I think that's important to comment on to show just how influential and how big Sandman was. It's it's not the first thing anybody thinks of when they talk about comic books, but... Well, Gaiman's... I remember this. Gaiman said in an interview, I think a couple of interviews, he said, Sandman is a really fascinating gateway comic. Yes. There are so many people who come up to him, and it'll be like women 
who say I got my uh, uh, my first comic was I had a boyfriend who told me I had to read Sandman and I read Sandman and now I love comic books and I've read so many comic books and vice versa yeah. people who are like I gave my brother Sandman I gave my kid Sandman I gave my parents Sandman and now they love comic books like he says that this constantly happened I think he called it a sexually transmitted comic I love that. Um, just because so many people had said that they'd given it to their partners, and then even after those relationships ended, yeah. they kept up with it. Right, right, right. That's awesome. So, yeah, that's why I wanted to first talk about Sandman, because for me, and I've read many, not all, but many of Gaiman's novels, and I love them. Mm-hmm. But to me, Neil Gaiman is always going to be the guy who created Sandman. Mm-hmm. And it's one of my all-time like like top three comic books of all time so mm-hmm. it it's very important to me and i heartily recommend anybody to pick it up and give it a chance and catch the bug yeah as it were yeah <laughs> but i mean here's and here's the funny thing with gaming um i don't know if we're looking to wrap up anytime soon but i'm i'm gonna say that when i was in grad school it's funny because I remember having um, professors who early on told me things, would say things like, we're not going to tell you to follow the career path of a particular writer because you can't, you literally can't, but it doesn't hurt to think about the writers that interest you and the ones whose career paths you'd be interested in taking. And as soon as I heard that, I thought to myself, well, the writer I want to be most like is Neil Gaiman, mm. specifically, not because of genre, but because Neil Gaiman works in everything. And I have an interest in writing scripts. I have an interest in writing comics. I have an interest in writing fiction and nonfiction, editorial pieces, all this stuff. Neil Gaiman does that. Neil Gaiman Gaiman wrote arguably uh, one of the greatest episodes of Doctor Who ever, which is The Doctor's Wife. Right. That, That episode of Doctor Who is painfully brilliant. Goodbye. No. I just wanted to say. Hello, Doctor. But then he also writes, you know, he, he he's showrunning a TV show that's based on one of his books right now. And I think he's lined up to do another one as well. He'll write the scripts for the radio dramas of several of his books. And he writes comics. And he does, he just, he works in so many different areas. And as a multi-genre writer, that's the kind of thing I really... If Neil Gaiman wrote poetry, I would be like, <laughs> how do I, what voodoo ritual do I need to perform to have your career, sir? Right, right. It's interesting. I don't, I don't know if we've talked about a more contemporary writer. I mean, uh, Martin, George, George Martin. R. R. Martin. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I didn't like that. Yes. Yes, there is something I want to ask you. Alright. How the fuck do you write so many books so fast? <laughs> <laughs> but like... So actually, you know, you know, kind of in the same way George R. R. Martin did. I think part of the thing that makes Gaiman so interesting is that he is so multifaceted, mm-hmm. and it's almost something you have to be now if you want to have that upper that upper level of success. Like as a writer, mm-hmm. you need to be working in television. You don't need to be working in comic books, but. I mean, most, here's the thing. Most writers have day jobs. Right. Like, I, what, one, of, one of my favorite writers who's out right now, he's a YA writer. His name is Jeff Setner. He lives in Nashville. He's written three brilliant, brilliant novels, wonderful novels, each one better than the, than the last. 
Um, his day, he's a lawyer. You know, his day job is he is a lawyer. He writes on, he rides the bus to work and he writes on the bus, going to work, coming from work about an hour a day. Mm. And that's how he's written these three novels. He's older than I am. Conceivably, if he'd been able to devote his life, you know, full time to writing, he probably would have written a lot more. But it's worked for him. But that's how most, like, most people who are just novelists or just poets, I'm saying just with, like, air quotes. Sure. Like, most of those people are, that's what they're doing. The people I know who are full-time writers are the ones who, nobody nobody makes their living off of just their creative writing unless it's something that sells just, unless he can, you can do something like sell the film rights to Coraline. Right. Or sell the film rights to American Gods. Unless you can write movie scripts or TV scripts and maybe get some points on the back end for that. <laughs> also might help being married to Amanda Palmer, who yeah, you know. is one of the most successful indie musicians out right now. Right. So, yeah, a lot of factors at play for sure. Yeah. But but no, I, and I get that. That level of multifacetedness, it's because he's been successful and because he's been able to put his fingers in so many different pots you know, Neil Gaiman can write more or less whatever he wants because he's made his bones. Yeah. And Good Omens is going to keep making money because people keep buying the paperback. Sure, sure, You know, sure, his sure. books, except for that Duran Duran book, I don't <laughs> think any of his books have gone out of print. No, yeah, I think you're right. And, and yeah, I do want to close out, but I, I think it would be unfair to not at least briefly touch on his written works in a little bit deeper than we have because for so many other people, Neil Gaiman is known as the guy who wrote Stardust. He's known as the guy who wrote Neverwhere. Or the Graveyard Book. Or the Graveyard Book. Or Coraline, which were both like children's books. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and, and some of my absolute favorite books are American Gods and its kind of, sort of sequel, Anansi Boys. Tangential sequel. Tangential like sequel. Like a spinoff. I think it's more of a spinoff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, he... he we we t- we kind of touched on it he manages to build these high concept high buy-in fantasy worlds and he's really good at pulling the everyman the normal guy the the reader surrogate mm-hmm. to then experience all this wonderful craziness yeah. you know about the only book i can think where he doesn't do that was actually one of the first books he ever wrote, and that was Good Omens, which he wrote with Terry Pratchett. Yeah. You know, Good Omens doesn't have that reader surrogate. It doesn't, but Good Omens Good Omens is different partly because it's two braided narratives. Right. And it's very much like two different stories about the same thing, but intertwined with one another. So like if, if and so with Good Omens, Gaiman's parts were all of the um like the four horsemen of the apocalypse parts mm, sure because those are the those are the characters he came up with and those were the chapters that he was sending in which are more like compared to the other narrative which is the you know lost antichrist narrative right that's a very character driven part and that's pratchett not to say but like pratchett did high fantasy plenty yeah but just this particular project that's how that shook out sure 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 but you're right that was one of his earliest works that was definitely before he landed his Alice in Wonderland motif. Right, absolutely. And and so many of these, I imagine listeners are thinking about 
Oh, yeah, Stardust was a movie. Oh, yeah, I watched Coraline. Hey, oh, I think American Gods is a TV show. And you're right, and it's it, it it's just looping back on all these things, and it's interesting. Just about all of Gaiman's books have been re-put out in some way, shape, or form, be it as a movie or a television show, or even, like, Neverwhere and... Um, Norse mythology both came out as BBC radio plays. Yeah. Like they're they're all being redone in other mediums and I think that helps proliferate the popularity of them mm-hmm. and giving people other ways to experience and enjoy the artwork. Yeah. So I I love Neil Gaiman. He he is one of my favorite authors. I I say without like hyperbole he is maybe the greatest fantasy author mm-hmm. alive right now working right now yeah. i love um how he has applied himself over so many different mediums i love how his work is just so full of love letters to classic fantasy or horror concepts and he's got a very unique voice mm-hmm. And I love that. Yeah. So I'm going I'm to make an offer to our readers right now. If any of you are not familiar with Gaiman and you're interested in picking up something of his, I want you to tweet us at LHRPod. Tell us your interests. That can be a genre you're interested in. That can be a vibe, aesthetics. You can say that you like things that are darker or lighter or, or higher fantasy or lower fantasy or more sci-fi or more realistic. Ocean at the End of the Lane is a lot less fantasy driven it's got some fantasy to it but it's a lot less of that than some of his other ones longer works shorter works comics novels short stories essays tv radio audio books his recording of the graveyard book is fantastic let us know what you're interested in we'll make a recommendation for you i like that yeah i like that a lot okay so there you go guys all right shall we move on yeah let's go ahead okay this has been a long time coming you know we we did a couple of sort of practice episodes, which I don't know if they'll ever see the light of day, but the topics we discussed might. But one of the first things you talked about was a particular rap group. And mm-hmm. I remember in our discussion, you made a point to crap on the person you're about to crap on. Yep. So um, in that particular one, I talked about uh, hip hop super group Run the Jewels who are my favorite hip-hop act out right now. Um, I'm not going to talk about them in this one, though I might I, that might revisit that one, especially when their uh, fourth album is supposed to come out sometime this year, so I might do it in anticipation of that. But uh, today, I want to talk about someone that I used in that Run the Jewels discussion to juxtapose quality. <laughs> and that is uh, Post Malone. So, Andy, as always, I'm going to open by asking you a question. So, dear boy. I'm going to ask you to sum up Post Malone as a person and musician to the best of your knowledge and as succinctly as possible. Post Malone is a rapper, a very, very, we're talking like five years ago. I don't know if he had a career, contemporary rapper. Mm-hmm. And like the 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 way I want to frame this is I first saw a picture of Post Malone where he's got the 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 ponytails and or the the like braided pigtails is what it was and tattoos all over his face and really mm-hmm. shitty facial hair. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time 
I had seen really an instance of a contemporary rapper getting facial tattoos. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. He's like, he's like a dirty Eminem. And I, I mean, he looks like he smells bad. <laughs> that is a fascinating way to put it. Okay. So, <laughs> dirty Eminem. Jesus Christ. All right. So the first rapper I ever saw that had face tattoos was Lil Wayne, who I stand sure. hard, who I'm like, Lil Wayne is arguably one. He might be. He's definitely a goat contender. Okay. Um, but setting that aside, uh, thank you for that, by the way. The, uh, yeah, I guess the easiest way to put it is Post Malone is an American rapper, singer, songwriter, and record producer, uh, born in Syracuse, New York, and raised in Grapevine, Texas. Uh, you say, did, not sure if he had a career five years ago. He broke through in 2015 with the single White Iverson, which I don't know if you know that song or I not. Don't know. Uh, and, and he's since released two albums and six top ten singles, including Rockstar, Psycho, Congratulations, and Better Now. You probably think that you are better now, better now. And if I'm going to characterize his... Here's the thing. I, I, I'm trying to be careful here because I don't want to come off as either A... Old man shouting at cloud. <laughs> B, um, a rap snob. Because I actually have a severe problem with... Like, I, I'm a mumble rap defender. I'm not a fan, but I am a defender. Because I remember when people shat on the hip-hop and the music that I loved when I was younger. And I understand right now that a lot of that music is not being marketed towards me. And I try to be understanding of that. I'm singling out Post Malone for a separate reason, but by way of this intro, uh, the best way to describe his music is it's been described as a blend of hip-hop, rock, pop, and country. He's listed Fall Out Boy, My Chemical Romance, Bob Dylan, and 50 Cent as major influences. I did not know that. That is a fascinating pool to be drawing from. Straight up. So here, getting into this. On paper, Post Malone seems like he should be, especially for someone like me, who listens to a wide array of genres of music and loves the blending of genres, Post Malone on paper should be great. Like, legitimately, there's so much, there's so much to appreciate about a lot of what his credentials seem to be. The fact that he likes... Fallout Boy, which is, you know, one of my favorite bands. The fact that he's really into Bob Dylan. He's got, like, a Bob Dylan tattoo. Like, mm. he called Subterranean Homesick Blues the first rap song, which I don't agree with at all. But it's an interesting conceit. And, 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 and I will give him this, getting into this discussion. He legitimately has some musical gifts. He chooses fantastic beats. As far as I know, he's not a beat writer. Like, he's not a beat maker. He doesn't mm -hmm. make beats. But he chooses great beats, which probably means he collaborates with some great people. Uh, and he has some great hooks. I, I was saying before we recorded, like, I, I spent this morning listening to Post Malone. Because I hate myself. <laughs> um, and I was reading up about him. I, I learned more about Post Malone this morning than I have, than I knew previously, because I just wasn't a fan. Sure. And knowing what I know about him, Oh, God. Better Now is still stuck in my head. Like, that hook is fantastic. I, I think I think post, I think there's an alternate universe where Post Malone didn't decide to center himself. He just became, like, 
a collaborator. He sure. like he's like he's straight up in a studio with Drake, helping Drake, you know, come up with songs. And I actually would not be mad about that. I would be like, this would be legitimately wonderful work for you. But the problem, the problem that I have with him is that he's an incredibly vapid writer. And he seems to act as though his interest in these varying genres is some kind of substitute for either creativity or or is some demonstration of his mastery over them. Okay. So I think about, like, genre-bending artists. Um, first thing that pops in my head is... And, and, and this might sound weird to some folks. First thing that probably pops in my head is Jane's Addiction. So are you familiar with Jane's Addiction, Andy? I'm familiar with a couple of songs of Jane's Addiction. Okay, so the fascinating thing about Jane's Addiction was they were a band of four people. And by all accounts... Uh, Perry Farrell, their lead singer, was really into goth music. Their bassist, whose name escapes me, um, he was a big punk fan. And then Dave Navarro, the guitarist, and their drummer, whose name also escapes me, were big metalheads. So when you listen to Jane's Addiction, when you listen to something like Jane Says, or I think it's called Stop Go, like any of yeah. those songs, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's this really fascinating blend of genre there. Like, you can, if you're listening to that, you can go, all right, I can see how, I can see how this bass line was written by a punk fan. I can see how this guitarist and this, and this drummer are really into metal. I can see how these are goth-ish lyrics. Like, they blended these genres really, really intriguingly. Post Malone blends genre like an idiot. <laughs> like, he, he, like, he takes straight-up hip-hop beats... Right. With a pop hook and then country imagery, but like not in an interesting way. Sure. I'm going to, and I'm going to, I'm going to read something to you guys. I'm going to, I'm going to link this in the show notes, but nothing solidified my feelings about Post Malone better than a write-up that happened in the Washington Post, October 30th of 2018. It's written by a guy named Jeff Weiss. And it was a review of Post Malone's uh, first festival, the Postie Fest. Mm-hmm. Or I think it might just be Postie Fest. And the title of this article is, Post Malone is the perfect pop star for this American moment. That's not a compliment. <laughs> yeah, right. And I'm just going to read these two paragraphs to you guys. The most popular young artist in the most unpopular young nation is a rhinestone cowboy who looks like he crawled out of a primordial swamp of nacho cheese. Post Malone is a Halloween rental, a removable platinum grill, a cubic zirconium proposal on the jumbo screen of a last place team. His music, one of the shallowest bastardizations of rap to date, and I don't say that lightly, has the creative tension of associates at a downtown law firm complaining that $150,000 a year just doesn't cut it. He looks like he got clubbed over the head by a cartoon peacock. He just turned 23. This article summarizes my... And I highly recommend everyone... It's a five-minute read. This article emphasizes everything I loathe about Post Malone. Post Malone clearly loves music and i appreciate that i'm a it's important to me when musicians have varying interests and they talk about them nothing made me happier 
watching The Defiant Ones, the HBO doc on uh, Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine, than when Dr. Dre plays his favorite Nirvana song for the cameras. He hmm. just plays Stay by Nirvana. And I'm like, and he is into it. You can tell Dr. Dre's a fan. And I go, I love this moment. I love seeing that kind of depth. Post Malone loves music. But Post Malone, when he crafts music, does so in a really, really vapid, vacant manner. Sure. And we we talked on our Nickelback episode about, like, cutting Nickelback a ton of slack over the fact that they very deliberately wrote music hoping to make hits. Post Malone just kind of goes... Yeah, no, that's dope. That that's that sounds good. Let's do it, and and it works for him. Part of that's that he's white. Uh, if a black rapper tried to tried to do these songs, tried to do these kinds of lyrics, mm. you know, maybe they could get somewhere. You know, Migos is out here doing stuff. Sure, I don't love Migos, but you know, they but Migos has more artistry than Post Malone. Future has more mumble. There are mumble rappers legitimately, who put in the time to at least do something sonically interesting. Post Malone doesn't have that for me. Like, none of his songs, other than those hooks, lyrically grip me in any interesting way. You were you were sitting here telling me that Post Malone's been stuck in your head all morning. Yeah. <laughs> and it's true, you know, like, the one that... I think is maybe as big as said the one that comes to mind for me is Rockstar. Yeah. And say what you will about Post Malone and his presentation and his his music. We will. We have. Rockstar burrows itself into your head. Yeah. Like it, it is a it is a sonic earwig. Um, something that I don't think you know that is, is, is I, I feel is interesting and important here. There is a there was a a subsection of YouTubers who were very big on like shock comedy and intentionally on PC stuff. I'm talking about Filthy Frank, Idubs, anything for views. Mm-hmm. If you're not familiar with these guys, probably don't watch their videos. <laughs> Uh, maybe do some Wikipedia research if you, if you want to know more. But these are guys that made a point of making antagonistic, un-PC content. Um, and I know for a fact that Post Malone knew these guys and was friendly with them to the point where he just kind of cameoed in a guy's video for no other reason and this was like before he really made it big but like he's into this sort of so i know i know personally that he is into that same style of humor that same hey won't this be funny that everybody gets ticked off yeah kind of imagery yeah i mean the thing is there there's there are aspects of his bio that if I were, here's the thing, I I am not one of those shitty, I want to I wanna crap all over millennials types, but everything about Post Malone, it, it's, okay, it's like when people would make sexist comments about Hillary Clinton during the election, because I was a guy who, I voted for Hillary Clinton, I'm very happy I voted for Hillary Clinton, 
that was a compromise for me, very much. Like, right. I, I, I have a lot of criticisms of Hillary Clinton. And so I would have discussions with people, and I'd be like, okay, I have a problem with the fact that Hillary Clinton's a war hawk. I have a problem with the fact that Hillary Clinton supported really racist policies in the 90s. I have a problem with the fact that Hillary Clinton is bought and sold by Wall Street. Like, these are my criticisms of Hillary Clinton. And I could be having a conversation with someone, and they would go, yeah, also she's a fucking bitch. <laughs> And I'm just like, ah, this is terrible because neither of us like this person, but I don't like her for the reasons I just listed. And you don't like her because you're a misogynist asshole. Sure. The thing about Post Malone is I don't like Post Malone because I find his music vapid, his appreciation of the genres that he claims to love to be idiotic. And a lot of other people are going to hate him because of things like when he first moved to L.A., he moved out with his friend who was a professional video game player and you, and video game streamer. Yeah. And he made his first single on Audacity. Like, these... His bio, in a lot of ways, reads like the most millennial-ass shit ever. <laughs> and I'm like... Here's the thing. In the hands of somebody who's actually interesting, who actually does something with this music, it would feel it might feel different but it doesn't and i worry again i worry a lot that i come off as like shaking my fist at a cloud i hate this guy because he's a vapid pop star and the thing of it is he just he he said in an interview a while back that he liked to consider himself genreless that he didn't want to be identified as a rapper and I understand where he's coming from on that. I understand this idea that if you work in multiple genres, you don't want to feel confined to something like that. Um, I can't remember if this was a conversation you and I had or not, but I remember Maurice Sendak, the author, yeah, Where right. Wild Things Are, The Night Kitchen. Uh, he said, no, this is with another friend of mine, but, but Maurice Sendak, you know, made his living writing picture books. But he always said, I don't write books for children. I write books and children seem to like them. I respect that. It's a little, uh, okay, Neil. Okay, Marie Sendak. Like, I, I feel like you're throwing the genre under the bus a little bit. But I can respect that. Post Malone said, you don't listen to hip hop because you want to know anything about real life. That it's not a music you listen to for some semblance of reality or understanding. And I'm sitting here like... This bitch wrote, I've been fucking hosing, popping pillies, feeling like a rock star. Fuck you. Fuck you. What are you doing for this culture? You are aping hip hop. You are taking hip hop. And, and, and make no mistake, you listen to any Post Malone. He might blend some genres. He might play a little bit. But he uses a, a, a clear hip hop basis for everything he does. And he has no respect for this culture. He has no he, among the among the people that I listed as like common references for him. He listed Fifty Cent the most highly. I like Fifty Cent. I got nothing against Fifty Cent. He his his intro in his shows is he plays three Eminem albums or I'm sorry three Eminem songs, which I guess is supposed to be a reference to like hey I'm a big fan of Eminem, but and, and something Eminem and Post Malone had in common was they both say they both say being white. Being a white rapper has its disadvantages. Like, right. there are biases against white rappers. When Eminem said that, 
he had been struggling with dealing with the post vanilla ice world and the post kid rock world and was but but here's the thing Eminem paid his dues sure Eminem took second place in the rap olympics Eminem earned his spot Eminem got his co-signs from Dr Dre and earned his place for all the problematic aspects of Eminem Eminem studies this craft Eminem is the first guy I've ever seen thank Cool G Rap in one of his acceptance speeches. Nobody talks about Cool G Rap anymore. Cool G Rap is one... Do you know who Cool G Rap is? Nope. Cool G Rap was one of the OG rappers in the late 70s and early 80s, paving the way for this kind of shit. Eminem gave him a shout-out during an award speech. He's talked several times about the rappers who have influenced him and how he cares about this art form and wants to push it forward. And Post Malone goes, I like 50 Cent. Fuck you. <laughs> uh, you. You listed something in the notes here that I, I find fascinating. And I don't know if you wanted to, <laughs> if you wanted to be the one to vocalize this. Apparently, Post Malone said that Donald Trump, that had Donald Trump asked him to perform at his inauguration, he wouldn't have declined, mm-hmm. but he really wanted Bernie to win. Yes. He that sentence... And the meaning behind it. Yeah. Post Malone is the musical equivalent of people who protest voted Hillary Clinton but and voted for Donald Trump. Right. He is that. He is the white privilege rapper. Sure. He is the Bernie bro rapper. It's fascinating. Are you familiar with um, Logan Paul? Yes, and Jake, tangentially, and yeah. Jake Paul, yeah. the the, the, the YouTube, the, the the shitty ass YouTubers. Well, they've also like come out with songs. They have their it, it it's their own version of D twelve, but it's a bunch of preppy ass white kids. It's every day, bro, with the Disney Channel flow. This is the worst thing I've ever heard. <laughs> um, I, I I only thought about this now, so I don't have um the group off the top of my head, but like. When I think uh, Team 10, so Team 10 is this group of Jake Paul and his brother Logan Paul who are both fucking problematic individuals. And it's all their rich white Malibu prep friends making these these YouTube brag posts. And it, it, it I feel like they are the preppy version to what Post Malone is like the art kid version of the same white privilege concept. That horrifies me. But, but, but that's my thing, man. It's like, I can legitimately say, I think, I think when Eminem broke through, Eminem made it okay for black rappers to point at this white rapper and be like, that guy is legitimately in my top five. The only white rappers who had really earned a lot of cred in the hip hop community were the Beastie Boys. And they and that was for a very particular reason. That's because the Beastie Boys did for the culture. Right. The Beastie Boys knew that because they were white, they would break through in a certain way. And they used that to try and help run DMC, to help LL Cool J, to help all these other huge pioneers of the genre breakthrough. They actively supported them. They brought them on tour. They talked them up in interviews. They, they, they 
Like the, there, there's an MTV video or there's an MTV uh, interview with the Beastie Boys where they had Will Smith, they had Fresh Prince and, the, and Jazzy Jeff come by, just come by during the interview. And they got to sit down and get some screen time on air. They helped make those guys' careers happen. For that reason, the Beastie Boys, even when they kind of left hip-hop to do more experimental other stuff, the, and, and Beastie Boys have always been corny. They've always been... Like, no one has ever said the Beasties were, like, the most lyrical rappers. But they, but, but they cared about the culture. And Eminem cared about the culture. Vanilla Ice didn't care about the culture. Kid Rock... Arguably cared about the culture early on, but as soon as he got successful, he just kind of let it fall away to the side. Sure. Which is really fucking depressing, because I, I know the early stories on Kid Rock. Kid Rock paid a lot of dues, and then, again, he threw it all under the bus. Post Malone didn't even wait for the bus. He called an Uber first. <laughs> oh, that's that's brilliant. I like that. I, and, 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 yeah... So, you don't get Post Malone without Eminem breaking that door down. Sure. But it isn't the culture that's out here for Post Malone. They're out here for 21 Savage. And I listen to Rockstar, and it's funny because I'm listening to this flow, and I'm assuming that Post Malone wrote the flow. Because it's very much in line musically with what he does. But when Post Malone puts lyrics into that flow, I'm sitting here going like... This bitch just referenced Bon Scott and not very clever. Whereas when 21 Savage uses that flow, it's solid. I'm never going to put 21 Savage in my top lyricists, but it's it's just better. Sure. It's just stronger work. Yeah. Because 21 Savage came up in the Atlanta hip-hop scene and gives a fuck. Whereas Post Malone is out here just like... We started this conversation with a reference to Run the Jewels. Killer Mike will talk about... What, uh, I'm, I'm trying to see here. Killer Mike will go, wake up, drink water, smoke, blunt, clean oil, my Kalishnikov. Killer Mike will talk about his guns. Sure. Killer Mike will talk about his guns and say, I am a supporter of the people of my community arming, arming themselves um, because as the great Huey Newton once said... Uh, our communities need to be able to defend themselves because the police won't do it for us. In fact, the police are the ones actively antagonizing us, and it's our responsibility as a community to look after one another. And part of that involves arming ourselves in order for, in, in order to defend the right to self-defense. Killer Mike will reference Frederick Douglass saying that our freedom comes in three boxes, the ballot box, the jury box, and the cartridge box. And Post Malone has a tattoo with a snake around a gun and says, I like the Second Amendment. I think I have a right to my guns. And that's the extent of what he has. He is an idiot who has been, who, who for having a little talent at hook writing, has been able to parlay everything around him, every opportunity afforded him into music that essentially tells an appropriative culture. Hip-hop is the number one genre of music in the world now. And it's the number one genre of music in the world because it's finally okay for Lil Tucker and his girlfriend Daisy to blast it 
while they're going down the road in an El Camino. Not to say I want those kids not to be able to listen to this. I'm glad hip-hop is popular. But with popularity comes commercialization. And there was a point where punk was taken over by the mainstream. Yeah. And for a lot of people, that result... A lot of people argue, sometimes unfairly and sometimes fairly, that that music is no longer worthwhile because the commercialism has superseded the artistry. Post Malone doesn't even make an argument. It's, it is the commercial, and it is artistically vapid. And it doesn't try to be anything else. Sure. And he doesn't co-sign the culture. He brings out Travis Scott and Tyler, the creator, at his festivals, but that has as much to do with the fact that he'll actually he'll get actual hip-hop heads to come out for those guys. What does he give to the culture? So I hate him. And I really, really hope that he comes out with some shit and finally says the N-word on an album like we know he all wants, like we all know he wants to, and then he finally gets appropriately dragged. Because I think it's gonna take that, or because honestly, I don't even think. I'm not going to assume he's done some really untoward shit right now. And he ain't Takashi. Right. Who has legitimately done some evil evil. But I don't think Post Malone is evil. I think he's stupid. And I'm ready for him to be done. So. There you go. I have shaken my fist at this cloud long enough. (laughs) Now what I'm with isn't it. And what's it seems weird and scary to me. It'll happen to you. Well, I thank you for your fist shaking and for your hate. I mean, we've we've made our stance pretty clear. There are a few things we tolerate less than hypocritic morons. And not believing in something is almost the same as being hypocritical towards it. Yeah. And I don't think he believes in the art either. Yeah. So, so fuck him. Yep. We ready for our question, Andy? Yeah, moving on. Um, So sad. I could talk to you for hours just like sitting across (laughs) here. Just take a microphone. Yeah. That's kind of what started all this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You want to read this one? Yeah. And so moving on, you know, we we like to take your relationship questions and try to give our uh, our best take on helping out with your problems. So in doing that, this week, here is what we've got. Hey, LHR gang, it's your gal Pam Beasley. Pam Beasley. (laughs) As my nom de plume suggests, I have an office question for you guys. So strap up and strap in. Strap on. Exactly. (laughs) I have a coworker on my team. I should state right right out that she is not my direct report, so I'm in no way over her. Giggity. This coworker tends to dominate giggity office conversations and meetings she's pretty she's a pretty domineering personality very loud very smart and very passionate giggity i know who that reminds me of she's pretty consistently inserting herself into meetings that her role doesn't necessarily need a presence at and just as a social thing inserts herself into conversations that aren't involving her either i know who that reminds me of yeah Both of those were me, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe she just wants to feel more involved. I do know she struggles a lot with depression, and I have a theory that she struggles a lot with insecurity. 
That said, I have a really hard time being patient with this human as she just really grates on my nerves. Any tips on how to remain professional with such an awkward human? And at what point do I make my supervisors aware of the problems I face in this work relationship? Is that too extreme? Well, thank you, Pam. You I, you might be the first one who named yourself at the beginning of a question, so that's a first. Uh, I've seen a, we've had a couple. Oh, okay. Gary Oak did that. Ah, yes, he did. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to go first on this, or? Yeah, yeah. Let me see what I got here. So, Pam. Apparently, this young woman was sneaking drinks off other people's tables. I Xeroxed her driver's license, and she is not welcome at this restaurant chain ever again. A couple of things that I want to zero in on just in your question itself. You obviously cannot know everything that's going on in this particular... Oh, we got... Should should we name the other person? It's Dwight. Obviously, we're going to name it Dwight. Yeah, Yeah, so Dwight, um, you use female pronouns for her, but we're going to call her Dwight. So the thing about Dwight, and this applies to both like original Dwight and this Dwight, is you have evidence of the damage. You know, she she is outright, you say outright that you know she struggles with depression, you know she struggles with, or, or you believe she struggles with some insecurity. And that sounds pretty consistent with this kind of action. Like, I, we were joking about how she has a domineering personality, but a lot of insecurity and inserts herself into these conversations. We were joking that that reminds Andy and myself of me, but that's very true, actually. Well, and I was going to say, like, I, I can absolutely recall times where I've been the person who shoehorns a talking point into a conversation, whether it was necessarily called for or not. That is absolutely something you do when you are feeling a little insecure socially in the situation. Yeah. So I I look at this and I go, you have you already have your framework of the why this is happening. And that's not gonna get solved. You can't solve her insecurities. It's not your place to, and I don't think you want to. Like, judging from the tenor of this email, I don't think you want to really be involved. This isn't going to be one of those cases where we tell you, you should really reach across and see if you can, like, form a good personal connection to help them with this problem. I I honestly think that's going to make you resent Dwight even more than you already do. Sure, I agree. I think what needs to happen are practical means to extricate yourself or cope with this and some of that you know even if you're not inserting yourself personally into her business some of that can come from talking to her uh in a way that is i'm not telling you to sit down and be like okay listen we need to have if we're going to have a professional relationship here we need to lay down some boundaries Maybe that'll work, but somehow I don't think it will with this particular person. Because if she's this insecure, that's just going to feed the insecurity. Right. What I think you need are practical ways to kind of call her on this and see how you can address it in the moment. If she's coming up to you, and if, if you guys have talked about this ahead of time, and she's coming up and she is just inserting herself with something that is not relevant a gentle prodding 
the, the kind of thing where you gently but firmly call her on this and you say, listen, Dwight, I, I'm sorry, but that's not entirely relevant to this particular situation. And I think we need to focus on this. Or because I, I had the same thing kind of mentally loaded up, like put it back on her and ask in the moment, I, I, I just don't understand how, how is that relevant? And don't try to like, be careful not to say it in any way that could be condescending, but, but try to earnestly get them to reinforce why the thing is relevant because that will a either they will be able to do that and provide better clarification and maybe they actually have a good point or b they won't be able to do that and you've put it on them to learn to stop that which i feel like they would do if they are called out on their uh their talking points that have no relevance to the topic you know getting embarrassed in that way is not fun and failing to make your point is probably a good motivator to stop attempting to do that yeah the part that i'm worried about for you pam is you you say outright here that you have very little patience for this person which makes me afraid that one day she's going to push a little too hard and you are going to snap at her And here is the problem with that. Nobody, no boss, no HR person would go, would would be willing to accept, listen, this has been building up forever and I finally just snapped. Right. They see there was a workplace altercation. I'm not saying you're going to have a physical altercation, but if you snap at her and you are insulting or excessively disrespectful or this has just built up for so long that it just wallops you and you 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 go off. You you midge mazel her. You're now in trouble. You're now the one who has the problem. And that needs to be avoided. Uh, there's something... I don't know what it is, but when it comes to workplace situations and people say, I don't have patience for this person, that always suggests to me my penchant for maintaining protocol is being strained. And the problem with work is protocol is such a different thing than it is in personal relationships. You get to define the rules in a personal relationship with another person in a very, very different way. If this was just a friend or a friend of a friend, you can outline your boundaries without needing to worry about some kind of higher consequence. But if you snap at her, if you lose your control, if you lose your patience then you're done. Like, you just you just got yourself a reprimand on this. So first and foremost is you need to guard yourself away from whatever it is that is sapping your patience. Yeah. And you can't just say that she is sapping your patience because you need to look for coping mechanisms. That's your side of this. I wonder, seriously, because I, I don't know the dynamics of your workplace you make it clear you have no direct authority over this co-worker but somebody does and you even mention at one point do i make my supervisors aware of the problem i face if you work in the type of environment where you are able to have casual conversations or more 
personal private conversations with your supervisors and especially with her supervisors picking the moment but sooner rather than later at least making somebody in a position of power aware of this could be helpful now maybe you're not able to do that because that's not how things work in your place of business but you know you're 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 worried about getting the altercation Alex has described you're worried about getting into that yourself and I do think a way to mitigate that would be to make somebody else aware and if nothing else gain somebody who can empathize with your exact situation who is another team member and having having at least that person to be able to vent that out properly privately with yeah and and i will add to that with all of this uh, you you ask at what point you should make it uh known to your supervisors you make it known to your supervisors at the point where it is affecting work performance in a in a noticeable verifiable quantifiable way yeah if she is messing with the productivity of your meetings because she is inserting herself and wasting a lot of time. That is a thing you can quantify. You can say, we had an hour's meeting and Dwight spent 10 minutes. And I'm sorry to say this, but I clocked it 10 minutes of that time on ABC completely irrelevant bullshit. And you present that to someone. That way you are basically saying, this has nothing to do with her personality. This has nothing to do with the fact that she carries a weird ass knife on her ankle and (laughs) cut the face off of the CPR doll. (laughs) This has nothing to do with how bad she is at parkour. This has everything to do with the fact that she is eating up really really important time yeah and it's having a direct effect on work performance that's getting hyper specific is a way to guard yourself in workplace situations because you can make it not you need to avoid making this appear personal it might be personal for you but it cannot appear personal how do you be professional with such an awkward human you Address only where their awkwardness affects the professional environment. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think that's brilliant. We we gave advice of a similar sort to Harley Quinn back when she was having her office difficulties there. I feel like there is nothing that will can motivate a manager to help solve your problem more than a performance analysis report that that shows like hey this is directly negatively affecting productivity and if it's a it, it, not just your productivity pam but everyone that dwight is interacting with's productivity mm-hmm. you know that the the 10 minutes of that meeting wasn't just your 10 minutes if it's a six person meeting that's Six people's 10 minutes. That's an hour 
of cumulative time that was misused at work. And, and those kind of numbers get people working on the issue. Yeah. And I, I'll, I'll just add this one other thing, which is you, you state that Dwight is smart and passionate and that's kind of great. Like, and that, and that's a really positive thing. And that can be something that if you, when you are addressing this, with either Dwight, I, w- I would say probably Dwight first, supervisors last. Um, when addressing that, those are the kind of things that you need to be willing to couch your criticism in. This isn't because Dwight is an asshole. This isn't because Dwight is domineeringly insecure. This is because Dwight is so invested and cares so much that he's running away with this. That's the kind of shit that guards you. I'm not presenting this advice as like, I want, I'd say this to protect Dwight's feelings. I say this to prevent conflict because workplace conflict makes workplace suckage. So if you're able to take your criticisms and say, I know, I know how passionately you care about this. And this is a spot where that passion is splintering off and not being channeled in the most productive way. Here's what is more productive from my end. Do you agree or not? Like these are, you need to softball this shit to start with. If you softball it and it goes nowhere, hardball it up a little at a time. Sure. Maybe ultimately culminating in this supervisor situation, but Always be mindful of how you present that. Couch it as complimentary. Couch it as redirection, not correction. And present it as these are where this affects the professional experience, not Dwight's a fucking asshole. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I think that's a, a, a great cap on it, man. Yeah. And Pam, we hope that this issue is you know resolved peacefully and successfully and quickly if for nothing else than for your own patience and mental stability here um that's our show and if you have a relationship question a work-related question a family-related question a pet-related question (laughs) Something that you could quantify as or qualify as being a relationship, we are more than happy to help you work through it and speak on it and give our perfectly unqualified advice. So unqualified, you guys. I'm not kidding you. But we mean so well. Yeah. You can send those questions to love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com. We promise we'll read them. That's right. And you can rate, review, and and subscribe to us. On iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. And uh, by the way, if any of you guys uh, listen on other pod streaming services of any kind, apparently there are more than just the ones I just listed. Didn't know that. Um, <laughs> send it our way. We'll, we'll, we'll try and get on there. You know, we've got the RSS feed, so anyone could just use that. But 
we want to make listening to this show as easy an experience as possible. So feel free to shoot that to us if there's another podcatcher that you guys use. Absolutely. And, you know, I've been seeing more and more people subscribing to Love Hate Relationship, and that makes me just absolutely so happy. We recently hit 25 followers, which is a very small number, but it made me happy to see that we reached there. Is that just the YouTube? Uh, that's the Twitter. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's the, no, we hit 26, motherfucker. Oh, okay. Well, 26 then. Even better. Yeah, no. We're recording this in mid-February. It's a... It's a bit before, but who knows? Maybe we'll maybe we'll crack thirty by the time this comes. In any case, thank you for your subscriptions. Uh, if if there's anything else you feel like doing, we are hungry for those rate and reviews. Seriously, uh, and you can also um, I don't know if Andy mentioned this. You can tweet us and follow us directly. The Twitter handle is at lhrpod. That's lhrpod. Send us your questions. Follow us there to keep up with new episodes. And again, we will wreck gaming for you. Just let us know wreck rec rec not not. <laughs> Not with the W. Um, we will totally recommend Neil Gaiman stuff. Just tell us what you're interested in, maybe other stuff you like, and we will find Neil Gaiman shit to send to you. That's absolutely true. I like that so much. I think we're going to start doing that with all of the applicable loves that we can. Oh, you can follow me, Andy Boel, at Twitter, at JovoCop2113. And I'm at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z on both Twitter and Instagram. Thank you for listening, everybody. This was just delightful. I yeah. love your face, Andy. Too bad I'm not going to see it again next time we record, but, oh. you know, it'll be okay. Uh, but as for all of you who don't really see our faces at all, <laughs> thanks for listening, and as always, tell your enemies. Tell your enemies.